Uh, we are, are continuing our uh, trek, our adventure through the book of Acts. Uh, I've really enjoyed this book. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the rest of Acts chapter 5. So if you could grab a Bible or a Bible app, we've got some Bibles over here if you want to flip over to Acts chapter 5 verses 12 through 42. 5, 12 through 42. So just to put this in context for us, if you weren't here last week, um, last week we looked at the first internal threat to the early church. The first internal threat to the early church. And if you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that first internal threat was unrepentant sin, uh, greediness and selfishness in the lives of professing believers in the church. And God uh, judged them immediately and, and uh, without delay to... to let the church know that unrepentant sin in the church is a serious deal. So we looked at that last week. Now today, the pendulum is going to swing back to what we looked at in Acts chapter 3, which it's not internal threats to the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Now it's, again, external attacks or external threats to the early church. And once again, we're going to see just how far the religious leaders in Jerusalem are willing to go to try and snuff out the light of the gospel. We're going to look at that in today's passage. I think it was, I don't think he came up with this. He came up with a lot, but I don't think he originated this one. But Ben Franklin uh, once quipped that in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes, right? That is a dismal outlook on life. But he said it uh, in the context of speaking of the Constitution being formed. And I will say it is true for the adults in the room We're on to 2022. We're all starting to get our tax documents in the mail. We're all thinking about that. So most of us will pay taxes as long as we live in this life. And all of us will eventually die. Eventually, the mortality rate is still 100%. All right? Uh, Modern medicine hasn't fixed that one. Okay? Unless, of course, Jesus raptures the church or he comes back at the return of Christ. Uh, Barring that, all of us will eventually die. But Christians... Followers of Jesus Christ can expect so much more in this life than simply death and taxes. Some of these things we can expect are amazing. We're going to talk about that today. Other of these things are amazingly difficult. We're going to talk about that today as well. But either way, there's a whole lot more to life as a follower of Jesus Christ than simply death and taxes. Unfortunately, though, and this is true of myself, it's true of all of us at different times, we tend to forget all that Jesus has promised us. We tend to forget the explicit things that Jesus has said. This will be a part of the life of my church, my followers, throughout the church age. Uh, We forget those things. We tend to think two things in particular. We tend to uh, believe that we won't ever see the power of God at work, that we won't ever see miracles. We've been trained, actually, in our modern context to just not expect anything what we would call supernatural Uh, I think nature itself is supernatural, if you want to look at it that way, that God sustains it and holds it all together. But we've trained ourselves to think, well, we're not going to see the miraculous power of God at work in and through our lives, in and through the church, in and around the world. We've also convinced ourselves or slipped into believing in our cultural context that we will never see or experience persecution. That that's something that's, that's far off in some you know, faraway land where persecution still happens to Christians. But, but we've grown up in a Christian 
uh, society, a Christian-influenced society, and now we're in a post-Christian context, but we've all kind of been lulled into believing that we're never going to see either of these things, either the power of God or the persecution of the Church of Jesus Christ. But actually, in both cases, the opposite is true. Jesus, in fact, promised us that true Christian ministry would do two things. It would evidence the power of God and that it would also elicit persecution from worldly people. He promised that. Consider his words on the night of his own arrest, on the eve of his crucifixion and death. In John chapter 14, verse 12, he, he tells his disciples this. He says, I mean, you knew all the amazing things he did, right? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And later on in that same context, it talks about praying in the name of Jesus and expecting God to work through our prayers in the name of Jesus, obviously according to his will. And then later on, the next chapter, John 15, 19 and 20, you've probably heard this before, but he says to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, we have a new nature through our faith in Jesus Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. We are no longer of the world. But he says, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. And folks, I could have slid in here uh, a dozen other passages, maybe two dozen other passages on persecution of the church that we find in the New Testament. But I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, oh, he goes on. I, I missed verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. And he, he talks to them. He says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. So today's big idea is, is really, it's simply this. It's that Jesus promised us power as well as persecution, and so we as followers of Jesus Christ should expect both. Neither of those things should surprise us. Today's passage reveals both of these realities in the early church. We see them incarnated, fleshed out in the early church in today's passage. So as Christians, we should expect power. And specifically, we should expect the power of God to bring people to Christ to bring people to faith in Christ, saving faith in our, in our Lord and Savior, and to bring healing through Christ in His name. So first, the power of God brings people to Christ. Do we believe that? In other words, God's power draws people to Jesus. And God's power, and this is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is to draw people to Jesus and to open up their hearts to believe in Him. Look at verses 12 through 14 in our passage. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. I think that's all the apostles were together in this section of the temple complex. But there's some debate on, is it all the Christians or is it just all the apostles? I think it's all the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. I, I take that as being the rest of the Christians were fearful of maybe arrest or, or something, uh, and, and they were not willing to go with the apostles 
to do these things in the temple at this point. So, going on, it says, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people, that is, these uh, people outside the church, the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the people held them, the apostles, in high esteem. And increasingly, believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women, were being added to their number. So they're seeing this continued growth of the church, spread of the gospel. So here we see the apostles displaying the power of God through miraculous signs and wonders. And and this gives them high esteem among the people of Jerusalem, just like with Jesus. You remember Jesus was held in high esteem for a while as he did signs and wonders, these messianic signs and wonders. He was held in high esteem by the people at, at different times in different places. And so too with his apostles. But... Uh, the, the miraculous signs and wonders, they also lead many of those people who held them in high esteem to place their faith in Jesus Christ and become members of the church. And I, I want to clarify something here. Depending on your background, uh, particularly different denominational backgrounds, different Christian backgrounds, I want to clarify that I believe that, that the signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles during the apostolic age were part of a unique period in church history in which God was authenticating the message and the messengers of the gospel and the teachings of those apostles, those sent ones. I think in the same way, the signs and wonders in the ministry of Jesus, that concentration of these really incredible, miraculous signs and wonders, was God confirming, this is my Messiah, listen to him. This is the one I've been telling you about. Look at what he's doing. He's doing everything I told you he would do. And I think when he died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, his apostles, his sent ones, demonstrated the same miraculous signs and wonders, confirming that they were indeed his messengers and that their gospel and their teaching were uh, the same as his and confirmed in that. I wanted to clarify that. Now, even so, we should all, now listen to me here, if you're going, oh man, he's not a fan of miracles. He he's, doesn't think that happens anymore. That could be, you couldn't be farther from the truth on that. We should all expect to see the power of God drawing people to Christ in every generation. And sometimes he draws people to Christ with all sorts of different things. Miraculous happen, happenings, uh, dreams and visions, a lot in the Muslim world and uh, in, in uh, Judaism today. Uh, so we do see that, and I want, to, I want us to expect that. I don't want us to think, well, he doesn't do anything miraculous anymore in leading people to Christ. He absolutely does. So that's the first thing, God's power in leading people to Christ. Second, the power of God brings healing through Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, to such an extent, he's talking about the increasing large numbers of men and women coming into the church. It says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. You remember how everyone brought their sick and diseased and demon-possessed to Jesus in his ministry? Same thing's happening in the ministry of his apostles. So people are lining up to bring sick, uh, diseased people. Later in Acts, we're going to see dead people raised from the dead by the apostles. And this is happening in this context. So that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. 
And then verse 16, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together as well. These are the neighboring villages and towns, bringing people who were sick or tormented with unclean spirits. They were demon oppressed or demon possessed, and they were all being healed. So, what do we have? We have purely natural, sometimes sickness is associated with unclean spirits or demons in the context of Scripture, but sometimes it's not. So here we have purely natural ailments, diseases, sicknesses, as well as supernatural torments that were all being healed by the apostles in the name of Jesus Christ. And again, I don't think that the unique healing ministry of the apostles was meant to be the norm for all Christians everywhere all the time. Again, this is personally, I believe that that was not that miracles don't happen today, not that demons don't get cast out today, but I do believe that that concentration in the context of the apostolic period was confirmatory. And now that we have that in the New Testament, those confirmations that they did what he did, I I don't see that as as a necessary thing for all Christians everywhere all the time. All right, just trying to be honest with you guys about my personal beliefs on that, all right? Okay, even so, we should always believe, listen to me, folks, we should always believe in the power of God to miraculously heal people in every generation of the church. And folks, I pray for those sorts of healings all the time in the name of Jesus Christ. I have no doubt that God can, from our perspective, what we call miraculous or supernatural, which is just, it's just God's thing, right? He can do these things. But I think that still happens all the time, okay? So I pray for miraculous healing all the time. And just like the apostles, we should expect to see the power of God at work in and through our Christian lives, in and through our Christian ministries, in and through the church of Jesus Christ. We should have no doubts or qualms about that. And I'm going to give you an example just yesterday, I had to drive out uh, to dad. I, don't even, I haven't even told dad about this, but dad has a commercial property in Bastrop and we have these commercial tenants. We have four of them. And we had a rat infestation in uh, one of the offices that rents space from us. Bad. The guy that went out there, the pest control company, when he first went out there, he said he lifted up the ceiling panel. He said it was like a scene out of Ratatouille. It's like all these rats just stood up and looked at him and just took off. So it was crazy, but we've been dealing with it. But I get a call Friday morning, and the tenant says, uh, this is pretty, pretty nasty. They haven't been out here in a while to check, but we've got a rat that has died on the uh, screen over inside the intake vent of the AC ducts, up under the screen, and it's dripping blood down onto our floor. <laughs> oh, oh. And I'm like, and I'm helping manage the property with dad. I'm like, oh, I think I like visibly shook. It gave me the heebie-jeebies. They sent me pictures on text. She was not excited. Our our tenant was not excited. And I couldn't just do the excuse of, well, uh, you know, it's the pest control people's fault. In fact, it's funny. They had gone out there and brought the wrong sized ladder. And so they said, sorry, can't help you. I'll give you something for the smell. And we'll be back on Monday, three and a half days later. I mean, they didn't clean it, nothing, okay? So you can imagine, we paid good money to have them handle this. Can you imagine how angry and frustrated? I mean, we're, we're staying in, almost in bee cave right now. And so my father-in-law and I drove an hour. We got, 
the right size ladder and we drove an hour out to Bastrop yesterday to remove this gigantic dead rat and it took us you know a couple hours but we got it we finally got the screen open we took it out uh, and when he took it out the guy that was there he just like shivered he goes oh you know it's like that that big uh, I thought it was a cat up there I didn't know what that was uh, now that you're thoroughly grossed out um, I'm getting lost here um, so I did that because the pest control folks hadn't done it so as as a customer of the pest control company have you ever done this where you've got you pay somebody to do something and like it doesn't happen and it's on you and you look bad and so you get angry and frustrated i left a very stern voicemail uh you know after they they left and and said we'll be back in three days um but all that to say i was frustrated until something happened and this is where i get into seeing the power of god at work in our lives I was frustrated and angry until I realized the reason why God had sent me and my father-in-law to handle that rat situation. Did you know God's power can be at work in the strangest of circumstances in our life? I realized that God wanted me to go get that rat. Not, not the guy at the pest control company. He wanted Ben Brummett, a follower of Jesus Christ, to go out there and spend a couple ladders on a 12 foot, a couple hours on a 12 foot ladder trying to dig out this dead rat. And do you know why? It's because the one fellow that was in that office was seated not 10 feet away from me answering phone calls. And all that time gave me the opportunity to get to know him and small world. In fact, uh, Mr. Edwards and I were both kind of wowed by this, but he's my sister's age and he and I grew up in the same neighborhood in North Central Austin back in the 80s, playing baseball at the same league. Uh, I knew the apartment complex he grew up in with his, his single mom. Uh, we were in the same creeks trying to catch the same alligator snapping turtles. And so we're just sitting there reminiscing like, gosh, we probably crossed paths in the creeks while we were doing all this. And so it gave us a chance to get to know each other. And so as we were leaving, he was super thankful that we came and got the rat out, obviously. But I just felt like this inclination to ask, like, hey, we're here for dead rats, but I'm also a, a Christian, and I would love to pray for you. And I see this as you being our tenant as an opportunity for us to also spiritually provide for y'all and to pray for y'all. Is there anything I can pray for you about? And he goes, I just, I just found out that my mom uh, has been diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. And we just got the news. And he said, I could use some prayer for that. And I said, awesome. And so uh, while Mr. Edwards waited for me with the ladder, I got to just put a hand on his shoulder and I got to pray for him. I got to pray for his mom. And it was so beautiful. And what I prayed, I prayed that God would miraculously heal the cancer in his mom's body. In the name of Jesus, I prayed that he would heal that miraculously. But I also prayed that if that was not the Lord's will for her, then I prayed that He would give her the spiritual provision through faith in Jesus Christ so that she would have eternal hope in the midst of this trial, peace, joy, encouragement, and perseverance in Jesus Christ. And I got to pray that for her and for Him. And I'm going to continue praying those things for her and for Him. So God used a dead rat to bring us together yesterday 
And I have every expectation that he will work through my prayers and my continued prayers in miraculous ways, whether it's through the healing of his mom in the name of Jesus Christ or through newfound faith and eternal unquenchable hope in that same name. As Christians, we should expect to see the power of God at work in and through our prayers for both salvation, that is a miracle, as well as for healing. So our application here is simple. Let's pray for miraculous conversions to Christ so that large numbers of men and women and children can continue to be added to the, to the church daily. Not just here at Wayside, but all over the world. Let's keep praying for that. And let's also continue to pray. And if you don't, start praying for miraculous healings in the name of Christ, but always leaving every situation in God's hands and praying, not my will, but thy will be done. So the first part of our passage reminds us that we should expect to experience God's power. As Christians, we should also expect persecution. This is not easy. Uh, Again, Jesus clearly teaches his followers to anticipate this, and he specifically teaches us two principles that are related to persecution, and these get fleshed out in the remainder of our passage. The first principle related to persecution is that we can always trust in God's power and in God's protection. Always. And then the second one is that we must always, no matter what happens, we must always obey God's word and God's will, no matter. So first, when faced with persecution, we can always trust in God's power and protection. In other words, listen to me here, nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. If God wants to accomplish his purposes, if God wanted me to go pray for that guy when I was taking out that big old nasty dead rat, then I was not going to die in a car accident on the way down from Philadelphia this past week. Do you understand that nothing is going to frustrate God's purposes? God's not going to say, I really want Ben. Oh, that thing happened. Now I can't. I got to figure out a plan B. That doesn't happen with God. God is sovereign. Nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. And folks, if he chooses to use us to accomplish those purposes, then we are unstoppable. Not because of anything inherent to ourselves, but we're going to see in today's passage because God was not done with us yet. God still had plans and purposes for our lives. And nothing, and that's hard to wrap our heads around. It'll be hard when we get to the the death of the first martyr, Stephen, who was young and up and coming in his ministry. I'm not saying this is easy, but these are the facts as Scripture lays them out. So, if he chooses to use us to accomplish those purposes, then we are, in effect, unstoppable. Look at verses 17 through 25. I'll read through it quickly. So, they're doing this miraculous ministry. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, People are being healed. And it says in verse 17, But the high priest stood up, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees. That was one of the parties within Judaism. And they were filled with what? Jealousy. Same thing they were filled with in the, in the ministry of Jesus. That hasn't lessened. And it says they laid hands on the apostles and they put them in a public prison. But, I love that word in Scripture, 
During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and leading them out, he said, and this is on behalf of God, the angel speaks this to him, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple area the whole message of this life. I am not done with y'all yet. You're released. Go and teach and teach the whole message of this life in Christ. It says, upon hearing this, They ran off into the countryside, scared and hid in a cave. Nope, that didn't happen. It says, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple area about daybreak, and they began to teach exactly what God told them to do. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, that is, all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported, saying, We found the prison locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. This is a real head-scratcher for them. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple area and teaching the people. So here we see that the religious leaders were unable to stop the apostles from preaching and teaching. Ain't no prison strong enough to keep them from going back to that temple and preaching and teaching the whole message of this new life in Jesus Christ. And they had to deal with that fact. There's nothing they they could do, and that's because God was still using them for this purpose. Now, Look at verses 33, and th- uh, 33 to 39. It said, and this is, uh, uh, this is after they were interrogating the apostles. I'm jumping ahead. But this is uh, when the apostles respond. We'll look at their response in a second. But it basically angers the religious leaders. So it says, but when they heard this, they became infuriated and nearly decided to execute them. They're just going to kill them on the spot. Okay, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who also happens to be uh, the mentor, the rabbinical mentor of Paul or Saul. We're going to see that later on. But Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, be careful as to what you are about to do with these men. And then he gives a couple examples to build his case. He says, for... Some time ago, uh, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee appeared in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He also perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if the source of this plan or movement is men, in other words, if this is a purely human endeavor, it will be overthrown. But if the source is God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. 
So here we see how the religious leaders wanted to execute the apostles immediately, just like they did with Jesus. They were sick of him. They were done with him, and they wanted to put him to death, and they made it happen quick. So they want to do this again, just like with Jesus. But God works through who? God works not through a Christian. God works through a cool-headed and much-respected teacher of the law named Gamaliel. The crucifixion of Jesus was the end of his earthly ministry. Why did Jesus die? We've already seen this in the book of Acts. Because he had fulfilled his purpose. That was the culmination of his earthly ministry, was his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. This was the predetermined plan of God. So Jesus, was, his crucifixion was at the end of his earthly ministry. But the ministry of his apostles was just beginning. So God protected them, even through the advice and influence of a non-Christian. So when we are faced with persecution, we can always trust in God's power and in God's protection. Second, when faced with persecution, we must always obey God's word and God's will. Why are we persecuted? So that we'll shut our mouths. Why were they persecuted? Stop doing stuff in the name of Jesus. Stop healing people and, and preaching the gospel and blaming us for killing the Messiah. That's essentially what they're saying to the apostles. So when we're faced with persecution, we must always continue to obey God's word and God's will. The apostles provide, I think, a beautiful example of this kind of courageous, bold obedience to God. Look at verses 26 through 32. It says, Then the captain... This is the guy who's like befuddled that the, the prison is empty. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. And then he gives us this little parenthetical side note. For they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. They're afraid they're going to start a riot if they mistreat these people, these men who are held in high esteem by the people. And they, they re realized something was going on with these guys. And it says in 27, when they had brought them, they had them stand before the council and the high priest interrogated them, trying to be all intimidating like, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood. They won't even say Jesus's name and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And listen to what they say. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest, raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter explains his loyalty to God over man. And I love that little short line where he says, we must obey God rather than men. He said something similar last time they were arrested. But I love that. We must obey God rather than men. And then he also once again preaches the gospel to these uh, enemies of, of the gospel. Some of whom would go on to become followers of Christ, I believe. 
But this is, this is how he couches the gospel. He tells them just in this short amount of time, he says that Jesus was crucified by Israel, particularly the, the religious leaders and the crowds in Jerusalem. He was crucified by Israelites. He was resurrected by the God of Israel. He was exalted to God's right hand in heaven. And all of this so that Israel and the rest of the world could be saved through repentance, forgiveness of sins, and by receiving the Holy Spirit, which was promised in the Old Testament as a part of the new covenant. So he shares the gospel with them. Now look at verses 40 through 42, the last verses in our passage. These are the religious leaders following Gamaliel's advice. They followed his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, Luke tells us, in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Folks, this is a very different culture than we live in today. They, they lived in an honor-shame culture. There are honor-shame cultures all around the world today as well. But part of this, this context helps us understand that this intense beating that they took, this flogging, which was probably what the Jewish leadership did, it was called 40 lashes minus one. So they beat you as much as they possibly could, minus one so they didn't uh, cause an infraction of the Old Testament law. But it was merciless. It was this, usually this three-pronged calf leather whip that chest and back and everything. Some people actually died from loss of blood in this. But each one of them were flogged this way. But it wasn't only meant to punish them but it was also meant to shame the victims. And in that culture, that was as powerful sometimes as the beating itself was the shame that you put on people. So the response of the Christians in that cultural context was absolutely countercultural. They didn't walk away licking their wounds, covered up in shame, never going to do that again because it's so shameful. In fact, they rejoiced, Luke records, in being from their perspective, in being counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ in just the way their Lord and Savior had suffered shame at the hands of the same people. So folks, the church should expect persecution from the world at different times and in different measures. But we can always trust in God's power and God's protection. And we must always obey God's word and God's will and that is where we will find peace and joy in Christ, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of persecution. Uh, this past week, uh, sometimes I don't know that I'm, sometimes I get in my little bubble in our culture, in our country, and I forget that things are happening all the time, all around us, even in our country. But I want to draw your attention to something. This past week, a new Canadian law went into effect to criminalize so-called conversion therapy. Uh, and that's conversion therapy of both children and adults, even with the consent of those children and adults. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details right now on that. Uh, in fact, I will send you the text of that new law that was approved uh, by the Canadian Parliament, and I, I encourage you to read it. But basically, this new law is written so broadly that it would criminalize Christian preaching, teaching, counseling, conversations, even prayer for people that holds to a traditional biblical understanding of gender and sexuality. Now, if you want to talk about our views on gender and sexuality, I'm your man. Like, I will go and we can sit down and we can talk about this. But this new law in Canada that was just approved is so broadly defined that even perhaps parents speaking to their children about these issues could come under the coercive power of the state to prevent. Read this text. I'll send it out. But here's my point. Guys, similar legislation is on track to be passed in Great Britain. A similar measure was just passed in France. There are tons of people in our country trying to push similar measures, legislative measures through our own Congress. But... Jesus' teaching on persecution, I think in the context of what's happening today and what may happen soon in our country, I think it's all the more relevant for us. Guys, we live in a post-Christian culture. We can't just assume everybody in government, everybody in social institutions, they're all just fine with the Judeo-Christian values and a traditional biblical understanding of things. It's just not where we are anymore. So I think that makes Jesus' teaching on persecution that much more relevant for us today, especially for those of us who rarely even stop to consider how close we have come in our own government, in our own country, to seeing that government intrude upon religious freedoms, even using the coercive powers of the state to do so, penalties, imprisonment, years in prison, fines, taking property, That's how this legislation in Canada was written, and it passed. But Jesus warned us that we should expect persecution from the world. And such laws are are just one example of such persecution. So what would happen if our own government made it illegal to preach the full gospel and to teach the full truth of the Bible, of Scripture? What would happen if our own government made it illegal to do that? This is our application. Well, the simple answer is this. It's that just like persecuted Christians in every generation and even all around the world today, we would continue preaching the gospel and we would continue teaching the full truth of Scripture unapologetically without cowering, without feeling ashamed, and setting aside Scripture, and setting aside the Gospel. And we would continue doing that because, folks, the consequences of persecution in our lives and the consequences that are being faced all around the world today in places like North Korea and Iran and China and other places, those consequences that we face for preaching and teaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ are only temporary. But the consequences of not 
preaching and teaching the whole message of this new life in Jesus Christ could very well be eternal consequences for those who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to be willing to face those temporary consequences to help other people have eternal hope through Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a quote from a Canadian pastor who is up there. He recently published an online article in response to the new conversion therapy law. And this was posted on the Gospel Coalition's Canadian site. They have a Canadian version of their site. So the Gospel Coalition, uh, this guy's name is uh, Paul Carter. And this is what he writes as a pastor with this new law in effect for his church and their congregation. He says, Jesus told us that dangerous days were to be assumed and expected. And then he quotes Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He writes, it's time for us to take that counsel seriously. Let us be wise as serpents. Let us not rant and rave in the public square. Let us not take the bait on every offered hook. Let us be measured and disciplined in the statement of our concerns. And let us be innocent as doves. Let us not abandon our call to preach. Let us not turn our backs on the vulnerable and the abused. Let us be humble and restrained in our public protestations. And if we should suffer for preaching and speaking the truth in love, then let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is our reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before us. And then he he finishes with this, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Um, Next week, we're going to look, the the pendulum is going to swing back to the internal threats to the gospel, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church. And we're going to look at an internal threat to the church where we see diversity not held together in unity, but tending towards division. And that happens in our lives and our churches too. But when diversity starts to move toward division, what do we do as a church? We're going to see that. Uh, how the church addresses that issue next week in chapter 6. So let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Please bow your heads.